it's lovely to be with you again tonight. So here we go. Welcome to Mark Doubt for Fruitfulness. And by my reckoning, I reckon this is talk number four. And it's very good to be together again. Just to remind us of where we left off the story, uh, we left it really with a little mini revival breaking out. Do you remember? Mark chapter 1, verse 32. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he wouldn't let the demons speak because they knew who he was. It occurred to me as I was reading through the bits we're going to look at now, that if this was a kind of Bible version of a popular TV program, Questions of Sport, and if it was around what happens next, well, actually what happens next is a surprise. And tonight I think we're going to see that Jesus can be the king of surprises. And there are three particular surprises that he pulls off uh, in these few Verses. Let, let me read the next few verses. Verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. For that is why I've come. And so he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Well, using our imagination here, the first surprise is that Jesus does a disappearing trick. You know, I, I imagine that the disciples, Simon and Andrew and James and John, they wake up in the morning enormously excited and in their memory bank, so fresh is the fantastic night they had the night before when so many crowds were coming together and Jesus was healing left, right and centre. And so the town is clamouring for more and they can't find Jesus. He's, he's not quite done a runner, but he certainly disappeared. And we're told here that Simon tracks him down. What are you doing here? He asked in verse 37. Everyone wants to see you. You're a sensation. Well, what is Jesus doing? He's praying. He's praying. And, and the discipleship tip here is prayer in private is the foundation of Jesus's day. And as we read the Gospels, prayer is center, central place in Jesus' life. It's not so much that Jesus teaches loads about prayer. It's that he prays loads. And here Mark lets us in to a secret, as it were, that it was Jesus' habit early while it was still dark to go and pray. Actually, Luke tells us something quite similar in, in Luke 11, verse 1. There's a very, very giveaway word. 
you have to be observant to spot it. But it says that Jesus went out to a certain place to pray, meaning his regular place. It, it was his custom. He led as much by example as he did by instruction. And some things about the Christian life are, are easier caught by being with someone who's doing it than they are taught. I, I wonder, and this is your question for later on, actually. I wonder who or what has most influenced you or helped you to make progress in prayer. Speaking, speaking personally, um, my parents were not prayers. I don't ever, ever remember them praying. Um, I seem to remember, and I can't remember why, but for a period of maybe four or five days, probably when I was about six or seven, my mother made some sort of a stab at bedtime prayers. Um, and quite honestly, they were pathetic. They were kind of, you know, God bless mummy, God bless daddy, let's have a nice day, that kind of thing. And I'm not at least bit surprised that after a couple of days or so, it, that just dropped out because we didn't know what we were up to and it was said with no great conviction. I, I can remember looking back that I can remember the first time ever wanting to pray. And uh, it came about like this. I was at school and um, it was just a perfectly ordinary Saturday afternoon. And there was a, a game of football to be held on one of the playing fields where the masters of the school, the teachers, were playing the pupils and the headmaster decided um, that it would be good for kind of relations if he spent five minutes playing football so he he made a guest appearance uh, in the match and he'd been on the pitch for about three and a half minutes i should think and he collapsed and unlike most people who collapse on on a football field he didn't get up and so the longer he lay in the mud the more the alarm was spreading and then as the, the teacher side formed a ring around him and sent the boys away, you knew it really was serious. And then when an, an ambulance came, it was even more serious still. And as a 16 year old standing on the side of the touchline, one sense this was enormously ghastly uh, and it doesn't have a happy ending because in fact he died. But I remember thinking, oh, I really want to pray. And I remember thinking at exactly the same time, ah, I don't even know where to start. And I can remember the second time uh, when I wanted to pray, but this time I actually did pray. And um, it's a totally ridiculous situation, but it's a true story. Uh, I fast forward and I'm now uh, 19 years old. Difficult to imagine Rupert age 19, but I was there once. And uh, I'm on holiday in Greece with two university friends. And uh, as you do at that age, um, we, we were pretty um, carefree and forward planning wasn't our, our, our best suit. And I remember we were sitting quite late in the afternoon on, on the beach, Antiparos Island. And we have a little discussion, go something like this. Um, so when does term start? Oh, I think it starts and someone gets out a kind of diary or remembers, let's make up a date, you know, 27th of September. What's the date now? Oh, it's the 25th of September. Um, how often do ferries leave from here to the mainland? Oh, once a week. Uh, when does the ferry go? It goes in about half an hour. How far are we away from the port? Oh, 
well, if we really step on it, we could probably just about do it. Well, the, the thing was, it wasn't a fair race because my two friends were fit and I was recovering from amoebic dysentery. It was, it was going to be absolutely hopeless. And, and we packed all our stuff up in a backpack. I can remember it very well. And um, tent, you know, all the kind of rubbish that you have. And off they strode on the double, leaving me increasingly behind. And as we walked along, I, I do very distinctly remember saying, God, if you're there, send the taxi. And do you know, blow me down. Over the hill, just at that moment, came a taxi. I know how stupid is that, but it did. And uh, I shouted to my friends, and we all leapt in the taxi. And one of my friends said, a chap called Martin, he said, you look like you've seen a ghost. And I, I know. I didn't have the courage to tell him um, why I looked like that, but I, I registered, oh, that's, that's very, very strange. And I think the third time I, I prayed, don't worry, I'm not going to take you through my entire prayer life. Uh, the third time I prayed, I don't even know I spoke aloud, but it, it was when I was searching for God. I don't think I recognized it as a prayer as such, but I know that I was saying in my heart to God, God, if you're there, and Christians say you are, they say you speak through this book, the scriptures, the Bible. So I'll read John's gospel. And if you speak to me, I promise you, I will do something about it. But if you don't talk to me, I can't, I can't make it up. It's up to you. Well, as I say, what I'm really describing you there is a prayer deficit of how incompetent I, I was starting at prayer. But when I think what's really helped me in my prayer life, Certainly individuals do play a part in it. I, I remember uh, meeting up with, happily, a vicar down in Devon um, when I was living off campus at Exeter. And whenever we prayed together, this man, who was actually quite eccentric, and, and I don't really know quite how orthodox he was in many ways, but his prayer life was vibrant. And as he stilled himself to pray, it, I could sense the presence of the Lord. And I could sense that he wasn't just saying words into the ether that for him, this was very important. And it was surprising, perhaps it shouldn't have been, but it was surprising uh, how often his prayers were answered. I remember him praying because I'd asked him to that um, somehow uh, communication would improve between me and my parents, who I felt were somehow um, distancing themselves because I was probably making exploration towards Christianity or had become a Christian. And um, he prayed that communication would improve. And when I got back to my house, um, having driven the four or five miles from his house to mine, and the phone was ringing, and I just knew, I just knew in my bones, this would be my parents, and it, and it was. I, I think in my early days as being a Christian, a way I learned a lot about prayer was church prayer meetings. And I know that's not the main reason for going to a church prayer meeting, but it's no bad thing if it happens. And I remember actually meeting in a rather scruffy room at the back of St. Michael's. And in those days, oftentimes, just about four or six people would come to a prayer meeting. And two of those four or six would be the vicar and his wife. And uh, we would pray. And, and I just learned being in their presence, just as the disciples were learning 
from being in Jesus's presence. It, it, it's often been said, if you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. And, and I think though that's a natty way of saying it. it it's, it's slightly wrong. Um, we can improve on that. I, I think if you're too busy to pray, you've got your priorities wrong. That's actually what it boils down to. And over the years, um, through observing people, I've come to the conclusion, and it's, it's not surprising really, that it doesn't actually matter if you're the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Pope or a one day old believer, you need to prevail in prayer. Uh, you're never gonna grow up, or you're never going to be fruitful. Uh, the basic things we need in place are, are not uh, rocket science and, and they're not that difficult. They are basic, but we have to have them in place. There are three tips for disciples uh, about prayer, even from this one little sentence, verse 35. It starts with a decision. Your prayer life and my prayer life begins with a decision. A decision only you can make for yourself and only I can make for me. And like most of the Christian life, uh, it doesn't come naturally. Lots of things you do in life don't, don't come naturally. Playing any musical instrument, really. If you look at a violinist, it's most unnatural. If you look at people playing golf, it's most unnatural. Sadly, eating chocolate is natural, but eating vegetables might not be. It, it takes a decision. How, how do I know it started for Jesus with a decision? Well, getting up early in the morning while it's still dark, after you've had as busy a time as he's had, it, it just doesn't happen by accident. It, it, it's a decision. He, he was committed to it. So I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, what time of day are you and I going to give over to prayer? And the answer should be your best time of the day. If you're a night person, maybe it is fair that you pray to God at night. If you're a morning person, um, maybe it's good to give God your best. There is some argument to be said, that even if you're a night person, early morning is best because you set the whole day before God. But I'm not going to be legalistic about it. The point I'm making is this. We don't just pray when we feel like it, because if we did that, we would never pray. We very rarely feel like it. Um, there's an old story about someone who went forward for prayer ministry and they asked a uh, rather seasoned uh, vicar, will you pray for me that I get out of bed every day at six o'clock in the morning to pray? And uh, the wise chap said to him or her, whoever it was, well, God will do a deal with you. If you set your alarm clock and you get the first leg out of bed, God will help you get the other. And, and there's a lot of truth in that rather a natty story. So a decision, what time will you pray? And the second decision, where will you pray? I, I found personally that on the days when I get to my place of prayer, at a certain time of prayer, it increases the chance of me praying significantly. I might still struggle, I might still spend time thinking about coffee and all that kind of thing, but on the days I don't make that appointment and the days where I don't make it to the place and uh, the days when the time goes by, 
my prayer uh, crumbles. Um, I'm not trying to do a guilt trip. I'm just trying to ex express to us how we can up our game as disciples. And, and here are a few observations about building a prayer life. I've noticed that oftentimes it's people who have been abroad in full-time Christian service who've come back stronger in prayer. And I've asked myself, why is that? I don't really know the answer. It, it might be something to do with the fact they're relying on God's provision. But I, I remember an elderly lady who lived in an almshouse in the first church I was vicar. And she, she was uh, advanced in years, in her, her 90s. And there I was uh, in my early 30s. And she summoned me and she said, Rupert, I've prayed for the last three rectors. How can I pray for you? And she really meant it. it she had learned over years that prayer was vital. And, and there's a word of warning here for us as we get a longer in the tooth, both in following Jesus and in whatever we do in our work. There is a danger that we rely on competence and experience rather than on the spirit and the power of God. Because we, we just know we can get by through the kind of human skills. But you can't actually, not, not in discipleship. Uh, you need Holy Spirit help and we need to be connected. Uh, I, I remember, I don't think he'd mind me sharing this with you, but he'd probably be embarrassed, so I'd rather that you didn't tell him. But um, when, when I was uh, at Wycliffe Hall training to be a vicar, that's a vicar factory, uh, one of the other year group was a, a man called Nicky Gumbel. And in those days, we were just both students. And um, he became a good friend. And when I took a job as a vicar outside of London and I wanted to come to stay in London for some reason or other, I stayed with Nicky and his wife, Pippa. And um, Nicky said to me, I'm, I'd love to spend time with you tonight, but actually I'm too busy, I'm afraid. Um, so, you know, you have fun, make yourself at home and um, you know, that's fine. And he went off to his study and I, I went off to where, whatever, watch television, etc. And um, before I, I turned in for the night, I, I went downstairs to say goodnight to Nicky. And to his embarrassment and to mine, um, I, when I opened his study door there, he was praying. And the thing was, he, he was praying about the Alpha course that he was going to lead the next night. And, and what impressed me, um, not that he needed to impress me, but what impressed me was here was a man who even back then, many, many years ago, he must have led already by that time in his life. He, he must have read, led multiples of Alpha courses. I mean, way, way over 50. But he wasn't taking for granted his competence that he was still praying for the next Alpha course, the next talk he was going to give. And he was on his knees crying out to God. And, and that, that's the story for all of us. <laughs> that's exactly it. We need a dependence on God. And then I, I, I want to say at the same time as that, we need to have realistic expectations of our prayer life. Not every prayer time is going to be a humdinger. Uh, in, in reality, how often does God step in and light up the room? I don't know. But I remember hearing R.T. Kendall say it had happened to him about twice in his life. And the thought that tomorrow could be the next day was enough to make him go and pray, to be still in the presence of God. And the third thing I would say is um, all prayers are answered, 
but they're not always answered in the way you would like. I, I read in the newspapers some time ago about uh, planning permission being given to a new monument up in the north of England and um, by one of the motorways. It's going to be a huge monument and it's going to be made up of bricks on the side of a road and each brick is going to represent an answer to prayer. And actually I went and googled um, bricks prayer and, and there is a uh, website you can go on to called eternalwall.org.uk and it, it, it led to a correspondence. Someone wrote and, and they said them all very fine and well to have a monument for answered prayer. What about having another monument for unanswered prayer? And then a third person wrote to the newspaper and said, well, um, it, how would you know it's unanswered prayer? How do you know it's not that God answered the prayer, but the answer was no. And uh, it's both humorous and, and rather accurate. But what's important is that we pray. I'm going to pause the talk there because I, I've taken up as much time as I want to talking and I want to have enough time in groups. And, and the question I want to ask two questions for us in our groups tonight. Uh, who or what has most assisted you in learning to pray? That's the first one. See if you can remember that because uh, they're not written down anywhere. Who or what has most helped you and assisted and encouraged you in learning to pray? And second question is, if you had one tip to pass on about prayer, what would it be? Mm -hmm.